All right, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter number 8. I appreciate Brother Tim filling in for Brother Kerry this morning. Kerry's lazy and backslid, and so that's a blessing. Now, Kerry had sent me a text. He said, oh, man, my kid's throwing up and everything and sick. And I said, well, yeah, kids are nasty. Amen. So he's got like a hundred of them. He ought to know that. But uh, Luke chapter number 8 this morning, uh, let's turn in the Word of God. What a blessing to be here. I'm thankful that you're here today. Uh, I know you probably passed by a half dozen churches before you pulled into our parking lot, and I'm thankful, I'm honored that you're here today. Trust that God's going to speak to your heart. Luke chapter number 8, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 41. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Luke chapter number 8, verse number 41. The Bible said, And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. For he had only one daughter. And about 12 years of age, and she lay a dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. And a woman, having an issue of blood 12 years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him and touched the border of his garment. And immediately her issue of blood staunched. Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude thronged thee and pressed thee. And sayest thou who touched me? Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceive that virtue is gone out of me. When the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling and falling down before him, and she declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him, and how she was healed immediately. And he said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. While he yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying unto him, Thy daughter is dead, trouble not the master. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. And when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter and James and John, and the father and the mother of the maiden. And all wept and bewailed her. But he said, Weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. And he put them all out and took her by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again, and she arose straightway, and he commanded to give her meat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you for letting us be here today. Lord, what a blessing to be in your house. You've gathered this group of people here, and not one of them is here by accident. Lord, they're all here by providence. And I trust that you had a purpose and a reason for gathering us here today. Lord, beyond just fellowship, beyond just seeing one another, Lord, I believe you have a desire to speak to our hearts. So I pray that you'd take the holy, inspired, preserved, inerrant Word of God and that you'd use it in our hearts and minds, that you would wield it. It's the sword of your Spirit. I pray that you would take it and wield it deftly in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, divide asunder soul and spirit, marrow and bone, and Lord, deal with us according to thy will. I pray that each and every heart would be touched in such a way that they might have opportunity and cause and desire to respond to you. Lord, there could be some that are lost this morning in our midst. It wouldn't be a surprise in a group this size. Lord, I pray if there is, you'd show them that they're lost. Show them that they need Christ. Show them that none of these other empty things will satisfy, but that if they'll just drink the living water, they'll never thirst again. Lord, there's undoubtedly some that are discouraged. I pray you'd uplift them. There could be some that are lifted up in pride, and you need to abase them, Lord. Some that maybe have allowed sin in their life or a rebellious spirit, you need to deal with them after that manner. But whatever it is, Lord, I pray that your will 
would be accomplished. And I pray that we with meekness would receive the engrafted word. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what will transpire. And we praise you ahead of time for it. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. The passage we've read this morning presents what is probably one of the most fascinating and one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. There are many things that are sort of orbiting around what's transpiring here. When you look at the season of our Lord's ministry that it was, when you look at some of the miracles that have been performed prior and, and the miracles that would follow, and this was a powerful and meaningful miracle. This man named Jairus, he is a ruler of the synagogue. He's not nobody. Now let me say, I'm glad nobody's nobody in the eyes of the Lord. Amen? But what I, what I mean to say when I say he's not nobody, he's somebody of significance in the nation of Israel. For the Lord Jesus to perform this miracle is a direct indictment of the rejection of the Pharisees. You know what it shows us? It shows us, hey, the Lord loves even those that despise Him. He cares about even those uh, that reject Him. Now I understand that a man has to receive Christ, have a relationship with Him, and, and, and if he wants to go to heaven, he must receive Christ. You must be born again, is what the Bible says. But man, I'm glad to know the Lord didn't just start loving me the day that I got born again. He always loved me. And here's a man named Jairus that has been part of this group of people that have rejected the Lord Jesus, but when he has a need in his life, he comes to the Lord, he falls at his feet, he worships Him, he cries unto Him, and I'm glad in mercy and grace the Lord responds to his need in his life. It's an amazing, powerful, poignant moment in the record of the Word of God. But there are some other reasons that I find this miracle fascinating. When you think about it in the body of our Lord's miracles and compare it with others, what you'll find is this is a very unique miracle. There's three ways just off the top of my head that its uniqueness is pointed out. Number one, I would say it's unique in its process. Now, undoubtedly, the Bible says in the book of, of John that if the, all the things that the Lord did were written down, the world would not contain the books. I'm sure there probably were other people healed in a similar fashion as this woman was, but the Bible doesn't tell us about it. This is the only person that we're aware of that comes to the Lord Jesus and reaches out and touches the hem of His garment and in that receives healing and in that receives a miracle. It's unique because He did not seek her out. She sought Him out. It's unique because she reaches out and, and the, the agent of this miracle or the, the performance, the process of it is accomplished by the touching of the hem of His garment. That's greatly significant. We'll talk more about it in the message. But then it's fascinating because she obtains a miracle without His express offer. And you say, preacher, why is that interesting to me? Why was it? Well, let me ask you this. Why did this woman know she could come to Jesus? Here's what she said. She said, he's healed others. I bet he can heal me. Uh, you say, preacher, what happens when a sinner gets born again? Does it, uh, what does the conviction of, of the Word of God look like in the life of every sinner? We hear these testimonies of these great, sweeping, dramatic testimonies of salvation. I think that's wonderful, man. I love to hear them. I'm glad you've got one, but can I be honest? I don't. I was a 10-year-old boy. I was raised in a Bible-believing church. I was raised under the Word of God. I knew more gospel uh, by the time that I was five years old than some people are ever blessed to know for their entire life. And I'll tell you how it was when God showed me I was a lost sinner. He came into that little bedroom on Coppic Road and He spoke to the heart of a 10-year-old boy, opened my mind's eye, and I knew in that moment I was lost and undone on my way to hell. There were no trumpets that sounded. There were no angels that sang. Uh, you know what happened? I already knew he would heal me, but I just had to be willing to come to him. 
There's a lot of people sitting around waiting for God to prove Himself. Can I tell you, He already proved Himself on Calvary. And He's proved Himself in how He has changed the life of untold numbers of people. Now, you say, preacher, what are we waiting on now? We're waiting on you to come to Him. That's all we're waiting on. Waiting on you to realize that all those other physicians can't heal you and you're going to have to come to Christ. So it's a unique miracle in its process. Number two, it is unique in its presentation. You know, this is, at least as far as I'm aware, the only parenthetical miracle in the Word of God. And you say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, the passage we've read really has two miracles. There is the healing of Jairus' daughter. And that stands like a bookend to this narrative. But as the Lord Jesus is journeying, He has already expressed His will and desire to heal the daughter of Jairus. And as He is journeying toward Jairus' house, this woman comes up, reaches out, grabs the hem of his garment, and listen, though he did not expressly offer to her that healing, understand he was aware she was going to do it. And he stops and deals with this woman. He's in the middle of someone else's miracle. You ever felt like that happened? You ever been praying for something and felt like God was stopping to heal every other person before he showed up to heal you? It's a parenthetical miracle. And the reason you have parentheses in, uh, in grammar is because something is so pressing that it must burst forth upon the thought that's already there. And attention is drawn to. And the way the Holy Ghost describes this in the book of Luke, he could have detailed this as two different miracles. He could have said, here was Jairus, and he comes to the Lord Jesus, and the Lord Jesus goes with him, heals his daughter. That would not have been untrue if the Bible had said that. And it could have said, here's Jesus walking along one day, there's multitudes thronging about him, and here's this woman, and she reaches out, and she touches the hem of his garment, and he healed her, and that would not have been untrue. It would have been absolutely accurate. But the Word of God is very careful to denote for us that these two things are happening simultaneously. They are overlapping. They are intertwined with each other. And surely that is greatly significant. Can I remind you that just as there is a parenthetical miracle that has taken place in this passage, there is also a parenthetical miracle that has taken place in God's plan of redemption. Do you know that, boy, we're uh, the, i got a message to preach. I can't be doing this, people. i got to get to my message. But do you know that in the mind and heart of God, He called a man by the name of Abraham uh, out of Ur of the Chaldees and spoke to him, and from him He built and birthed a nation that we know now today as the nation of Israel. And God was dealing with the nation of Israel, and for thousands of years He dealt with them. But then one day, uh, they rejected their Messiah. When that happened, all of a sudden, in, in the middle of the work He's doing in the nation, here comes lost and broken mankind at large that's in desperate need of healing. And he turns his attention away from Israel as a nation to deal with this church in the church age. And I remind you, there's coming a day the church is going to be out of here. He's going to turn that attention right back to Israel. You see, this parable pictures for us in many ways our church age. Jairus' daughter is a picture of Israel as a nation, presumed dead by all those around her. Jairus is a picture of the faithful remnant of the nation of Israel. Though it looks like the nation is dead, he still believes that there can be life and there can be, uh, and there can be victory and there can be a future for the nation of Israel. The scoffers are a picture of the world who will one day boast themselves over Israel that they have finally cast her down, finally scattered her to the winds, finally eradicated her. But here's something they don't know. The Lord Jesus is getting ready to put them all out of the house. And in a seven-year tribulation period, He's going to deal with Israel during that time. 
He's going to put the rest of his dealings with humanity at large to the side and deal with the uh, nation of Israel distinctly during the tribulation period. But through that, guess what's going to happen? He's going to gather that faithful remnant. He's going to gather the rest of the nation in the tribulation. He's going to deal with them. When they come out the other side of that seven-year tribulation period, there will be a fresh new living nation where once there was only deadness. You say, preacher, what does that have to do with this woman with the issue of blood? Well, she reminds us of mankind at large. It's interesting to denote, you know, the Bible goes out of its way to tell us that Jairus' daughter was 12 years old. Isn't that interesting? There's a lot of reasons for that. 12 years old was the age of adulthood for Jewish young women. But also, the Bible tells us that this woman has suffered with an issue of blood for 12 years. Surely that's significant, right? And it reminds us that uh, though Israel in her brokenness uh, has suffered, that this woman had suffered for as long she was older than the daughter, and she had suffered for as long as the daughter had been living. And I remind you that God had a heart for the world before ever there was a nation of Israel. And mankind has suffered ever since the Garden of Eden. And I say, you say, preacher, why, why do you point that out? To say this, it's not inappropriate for him to be calling out a bride from the Gentile nations. You say, preacher, doesn't he deal with Israel? Yes, he deals with Israel. You say, preacher, has he cast off Israel forever? No, the Bible says that he's not. There's coming a day he's going to raise that maiden again. There's coming a day he's going to give spiritual life to that nation again. But in the meantime, here's what he's done. He's turned his attention away and looked at this broken humanity to deal with them in their affliction. It's unique in its presentation. But then I would say this, it's unique in its pictures. So what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, when we read this parable, when we were not parable, but this story, when we read this miracle that takes place, I find that there are about three different ways this could really apply as we study. Now, let me make abundantly clear. No prophecy of, of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. The Bible means what it says. It says what it means. When the Bible says there was a woman with an issue of blood, that don't mean there might have been a woman with an issue of blood, or maybe this woman's just figurative and, and didn't really exist, or maybe she existed, but it wasn't really an issue of blood. No, when it says there was a woman with an issue of blood, it means there was a woman with an issue of blood. When it says uh, Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, it means Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. But I find that though the Scripture is abundantly clear that we cannot interpret this figuratively in some ways and literally in other ways, I find there are three ways that we could apply this Scripture. And that's what fascinates me this morning. I want to preach to you on this thought, a threefold picture of the Savior's power. What the Lord Jesus does for this woman with an issue of blood, it reminds you and I of what the Lord Jesus is doing for sinners and then once they get born again, what He's doing for saints in this day that we're living in. Remember, she in many ways pictures broken, lost mankind at large. And then in her healing, she pictures the church. Those that come to Christ, that believe on the Lord Jesus, that receive salvation. And so what He did for her is what He's doing for us in this day that we're living in. Let's look at these three pictures real quick and they'll, we'll be done. Let me say number one, when I read this miracle, I find in, that it is a picture of salvation. That's probably the most uh, available application of this passage. Probably if you've ever heard it preached on or if you've ever done any preaching, if you've preached on it, probably how you've applied it is in the idea of salvation. And I'm not criticizing you because when I read it, man, I see salvation all over it. So how does it remind you of salvation, preacher? Well, it reminds me, number one, in her suffering affliction. 
The Bible says in verse 43, a woman having an issue of blood 12 years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any. If that is not a vivid picture of the condition of a lost sinner, I can't imagine what is. You know, this woman probably had a lot of problems in her life. I'll tell you one problem she had. Uh, she is broke. Amen? I'll tell you another problem she had. Doctors done stole all her money. Amen? Some of y'all is going to really say amen to that. You know, they talk about them aged years. They call them the golden years. That sounds real good when they're talking about it, don't it? You get there and find out it means because it, it takes all your weight in gold just to pay the co-payments. That's what it means. <laughs> I know I get some amens. <laughs> Uh, this woman had a lot of problems, but you know, it all boiled down to the one problem that loomed over her life. Can I tell you, a sinner may have a lot of problems in their life, and undoubtedly they, weigh, they, they, they do the way of the transgressor is hard. But at the end of the day, they really only have one fundamental problem in their life. Now that's not to say if this problem is addressed that they'll never have any problems in any areas of their life again. But it is to say they could fix all the other problems, and it wasn't fixed the fundamental problem of their soul. You know, you could have given this woman a million dollars, but it wouldn't help the doctors heal her any better. You could have given her a whole family of people around her that loved her and supported her, and it wouldn't have made her any better. She had one problem. Her blood was corrupted. Her body was broken. And until that was dealt with, nothing else was going to matter. Reminds me of a lost sinner, man. It can have a lot of problems. And there's a lot of them you can fix up and patch up and paint up and patch over. At the end of the day, the only thing that's going to give them peace is if they come to know the Savior. You say, preacher, how does her affliction remind you of a lost sinner? Well, in two ways. One, I would say this. Her affliction made her unclean. Now, I don't want to get too medical with you this morning, but the, the, the nature of the text suggests to us that with her infirmity, when you read the Old Testament law, she would have been considered perpetually unclean. She would have been excluded from fellowship with other believers. She would have been excluded from taking part in the sacrificial system. In fact, this one problem meant that she was barred from having a relationship with God in the traditional way that Jews had experienced. And it's a reminder to us that when a person is lost and undone, here's the real problem with them. It's not that they're bad people. They might be, they might not be. It's not that they're mean people. They might be, they might not be. I, I've met a lot of mean, lost people. You want to meet mean people, join a church. Somebody say amen to that. <laughs> But there was really one problem that a sinner has, and that's that they are unclean in the eyes of God. Now, you say, preacher, that's mean. That's harsh language. No, number one, that's biblical language. But then beyond that, can I tell you something? We are all unclean. I, listen, our, our attempts at righteousness are but filthy rags before God. That, that's not, hey, that's not your worst 20 seconds. That's your best 20 seconds. Not your attempts at unrighteousness. Your attempts at righteousness, the best 20 seconds you have on tape is still filthy in the eyes of God. So it's true of all of us. And it was true of this woman. She was unclean. But then I would say this, she was incurable. Verse 43, the end says she had spent all her living upon physicians. Neither could be healed of any. Here's the basic problem she had. Nobody could fix her problem but God. Medical science is a, is a good thing. I'm, I'm, I'm for it. I'm not against it. Uh, I think God uses medical science. I'm real for it when I got a headache. Amen. But I, I'm not opposed to it. But I understand this. There are some things medical science can't heal. You can be the healthiest, most miserable person in the world. In fact, in my experience, most healthy people are miserable. And that's why I'm doing everything I can to live a happy life. 
But we could really extend this to any area of life, couldn't we? God's, listen, God doesn't loathe the rich man, but that money ain't going to make you happy. God doesn't loathe a, a person in their youth or in their age, uh, but that's not what's going to give you peace. There's only one thing that's going to satisfy your soul, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. There was nothing could fix what was broken in her but God. Isn't it convenient that she met God one day? And I think about my life, man. I should have, I should have died in my sins. I, I should have lived a broken life like so many people. But all the day when I met the Savior and He cured what couldn't nobody else cure. I, I think it's a picture of salvation in her suffering affliction. Number two, it's a picture of salvation in her simple approach. The Bible says in verse 44, she came behind Him and touched the border of His garment. I'm not going to belabor this because I said it a moment ago, but the sinner has to come to Christ. God's not going to come and make a sinner get saved. Uh, God doesn't choose salvation for you. He don't choose rejection for you. You're going to make your own choice. And He has already made abundantly clear. His, his arm is not shortened that it cannot save. His hand is outstretched. And now it's up to the sinner to receive that salvation. So this woman, she knows Jesus can heal her. And she comes behind Him. And the Bible says very explicitly that she touched the border of His garment. Why does the Bible tell us that? I mean, if it had just said she touched his garment, there are other narratives, other parallel passages that do say it in that way. Why does Luke, and more point, more to the point, why does the Holy Ghost tell us that she touched the border of his garment? In Israel, the border of a man's garment was a significant thing. In fact, God had given commandments to the Jews that their borders and the way that they sewed their clothing and crafted their clothing, their borders were to be fashioned in a certain way and those borders held great significance to them, spiritually, religiously, as a people. Listen to what it says back in Numbers 15. It says in verse 37 of Numbers 15, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue, and it shall be unto you for a fringe, that ye may look upon it, and remember, listen carefully, all the commandments of the Lord and do them. And that ye seek not after your own heart and your own eyes after which ye used to go a-whoring. That ye may remember and do all my commandments, listen to this phrase, and be holy unto your God. When a Jew sewed those borders into their garment, it was a pledge they were making before God and before other people that they were going to be a people of the book that they were going to read and obey the Word of God. And they saw it as symbolic of their own personal holiness. We find this same idea reaffirmed when we read in the New Testament record about our Lord Jesus dying on the cross. And when the soldiers took and parted His garments amongst themselves, they came to His outer cloak. And the Bible says it was one garment throughout. It was so it had no seams in it. And they knew they couldn't rip that into, so instead they cast lots upon it. It reminds us of the garment of Joseph in the Old Testament, the coat of many colors. And all of these things, the outer garment, the outer vestige, represents the outer holiness of a man's life. Now, your garment and my garment has seams in it. <laughs> I know because I busted a few. My garment has holes in it. Amen? But the Lord Jesus' garment was woven throughout. And it was a picture of His seamless righteousness. This woman in her brokenness, she comes to Jesus and she has only one hope. She knows that there's nothing clean about her. Again, I don't want to get too graphic 
But you think about those old rags that she was wearing. You think about her clothing. You, you, you think about how it must have been soiled and stained and stenched. But she says, if I can just touch his garment, his garment, which is a picture of his holiness, which is a picture of his righteousness, I, my garment's filthy. But if I can just get his garment, then I'll be all right. It's a reminder to me of what happens when a sinner comes to know Jesus Christ. Think about the intended message here. She was saying, I am unclean, but you are totally clean. My garment is insufficient, but your garment is all sufficient. And I don't need my garment anymore. I need your garment. When a person gets born again, here's what they're saying. My righteousness isn't enough. It's unclean. It's soiled. It's stained. It's ripped. It's ragged. But if I can just come and if I can let His righteousness be applied on my account, well, then I can stand whole before God. That's exactly what the Lord does when a sinner comes to know Christ. What the old songwriter talked about, taking off the old coat and putting on the new. This woman reaches for his coat because she knows that's what can make the difference. I see the intended message when she comes to Jesus. She doesn't earn anything. She doesn't, she doesn't make some long prayer. She, doesn't, she just comes to Jesus, reaches out in faith, touches his garment. And the Bible says, and immediately her issue of blood staunched. I see the immediate miracle. She didn't get put on a, on a, on a 12, 15, 18, or 25 step program to rehabilitate her to being a righteous person. And let me say with that, I, I'm, I'm not denigrating any, any processes people may use as they heal in their life, but I'm saying this, she wasn't put on the layaway plan. He didn't put her on probation. He didn't say, well now you've done this one good thing and that's pretty good, but you go get baptized and come back to me and we'll see how things are. You go join a church and then, then I'll see if I'll heal you. Well, listen, you, you, you be a real good, good girl and, and obey and, and just don't ever do anything wrong. And if you live your whole life that way, well then maybe I'll heal you at the end of it right before you die. No, instead, here's what he, here's what he did for her. The moment she reached out in faith, he healed her completely. I'm thankful, man, the moment that I reach out to Christ, he saved me completely. Now I'm not everything that I ought to be in the way that I live my life and I'll say a word about that here in a moment, but I'm glad I didn't get put on the layaway plan. I'm glad he paid it all. I see it was a picture in her suffering and in her simple approach, but then I see it was a picture in her Savior's answer. So a few things take place here. Notice what it says in verse 45. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude thronged thee and pressed thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? Jesus said, Somebody hath touched me, for I perceive that virtue has gone out of me. So there's a few things that happen here. I want you to notice, first off, the perception that she found or the perceptiveness she found in the Savior. He says, who reached out and touched me? And, and Peter kind of, you know, Peter's always saying something dumb. And Peter said, what do you mean who touched you? Like, everybody touched you, Lord. There, there's a multitude about you. And Jesus said, yeah, but there's a difference between the way they reached out and touched me and the way she did. They reached out and touched me incidentally. They just touched me because they were in the same vicinity as me. But she reached out intentionally and touched me. And I say this, there's a lot of people that live their whole lives getting thronged about Bible Christianity. They bump into churches, they bump into Bibles, they bump into preachers all the time. But they never reach out to the Savior. They never have any desire to be born again. They, they, just, they, they just sort of shuffle around church people and religion all their lives. But you see, that's not what matters. It's not who bumps into them. It's who reaches out to them. And so there's a lot of people that he says, oh no, there's somebody reach out to me in faith. 
And I know that person. I'm glad he knows who reaches out in faith. I see the perception that she found or the perceptiveness. Number two, I see the purifying she found. Uh, the Bible says uh, that in verse 46, Jesus said, somebody hath touched me. And here's how he knew it. For I perceived that virtue is gone out of me. There's a lot I wish I could say here that I don't have time for. Suffice it to say that his holiness is what healed her. But he says, I know there's a difference because what was holy about me has now entered her life and she is a new creature. You know, when a person gets born again, that's what happens. His virtue, his righteousness, his holiness is applied to our account. She found that when God healed her, God changed her. And you'll find out when God saves you, He changes you. doesn't mean that you always live obediently. It doesn't mean that you won't rebel against the Lord. I hope you never do, but, but you wouldn't be the first if you did. But what it does mean is you won't ever be able to go back to life the way it was before. You can go back to those things, but they'll be dead to you. They'll be hollow to you. They'll be empty to you. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Not only that, notice the position that she assumed. Verse 47, when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling and falling down before him. I think back in history, and I parallel this in my mind, to the wife of Adam falling trembling before God and the daughter of Adam falling uh, trembling before God in this past. You think about Adam and Eve that hid from the Lord because they were ashamed. And now here's a woman when she hides before the Lord, she falls down on her face because that's the natural place for a person to be in when they get right with God. But you know what I love? The Lord Jesus, He don't leave her there. He calls her name. He picks her up. When she realized she was not hid, can I say we're not hid before Him. He knows who we are. But she naturally humbles herself before the Lord. I think in the praise she declared, verse 47, she declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. She said, well, my cover's blown. I might as well just tell everybody how I trusted in the Lord, believed on Him, and He healed me. I tell you, when you get born again, your cover's blown. You might as well go ahead and tell them. Go ahead and tell your co-workers. Go ahead and tell your neighbors. Go ahead and tell your family of how He saved you and changed your life. And then I think in the peace she enjoyed, it says in verse 48, He said, And her daughter be of good comfort, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. Well, she got a lot more than a clean bill of health that day, didn't she? She just came because she had this brokenness that she needed healed. But she got a whole new life in Christ Jesus. And you know, let's be honest, a lot of times people come to the Lord and all they know is they're a sinner on their way to hell and they don't want to go there. When I got saved, I mean, and I understood a lot of theological truths and ideals and I'd been taught I had fundamentals. But I'll tell you why I got saved. I got saved because I didn't want to go to hell and I was a million percent convinced that I was going there. I had been convinced by the Holy Ghost that I was dead in my sins and I'd die in those sins and I'd go to hell. And I came, and I'll be honest, I didn't come because I was so overcome with love for Him. I didn't know Him yet. I didn't come to Him because I decided I needed to be a better father or a better husband. I was ten years old. I came to Him because I knew I was lost on my way to hell. And I said, now Lord, I need you to save me because I don't want to die and go there. Oh, how much more I found whenever I found the Savior. I mean, I thought I was just getting out of hell and getting into heaven, but I got a Savior out of all of it. I got a Lord. I got a Master. I got a God out of all of it. And I find this, that every day He's more than I've ever thought He was. So it's a picture, I think, in many ways of salvation. We've got to hurry. Some of y'all say, yeah, preacher, you hurry. Amen. Y'all listen faster and we'll get through this. Now, let me say number two, it is a picture in many ways of sanctification. Now let's go back and look at this same passage. And let's think about it not as a sinner that doesn't know God, but think about it as somebody that does know the Lord 
but in their brokenness is hobbled by their flesh. I think about it in these terms. When I think about this being a picture of sanctification, I notice the flesh that ailed her. You know what her problem was? Her problem was flesh problem. In her mind, she was probably as healthy as anybody else walking around. But it was just that body that didn't know the difference. You know, one of the tough things about getting old, I'm told, I'm not there yet, is that your mind does not get old. You still think you're young. You still, you think it when you climb out on the basketball court with a bunch of young people and throw your back out. You, you think about it when you labor and work all day and think you can do it like you did when you was 22. And, and you just, you know, your mind still thinks you're young till you look in the mirror and are reminded you're not. You know, in many ways, when a person gets born again, their mind, heart, and spirit has a craving and a desire to be completely and, and totally in obedience to the Lord. The new man that's in us craves to live in perfect harmony with the Lord. But it's just that old flesh that lives in us. He has no interest in the things of God. He can't be reformed, renovated, sanctified, or justified. That flesh hates God and it always will. And so like this woman, though in our mind we have a desire to live and know God, our flesh we find presents for us a constant battle. I noticed that her affliction was a prohibitive affliction. There were certain things that she could not do in her life because of this battle. And can I say, if we let our flesh have the right of way in our life, it will hobble us from being used of God. Not only was it a prohibitive action, it was a persistent affliction. The Bible says for 12 years. And I believe if she had not come to Jesus, it would have been 12 more and 24 more and, and 10,000 more years that she would have dealt with it however long she lived. It wasn't going to get any better until it was mortified and dealt with. And I say your flesh is not going to get any better than it is. I, I'm not trying to discourage you, but I'm, I'm just telling you. In your, you say, preacher, I'm waiting for it to get better. I want it to get, I want it to, I want my flesh to be good. Well, the problem is in your flesh dwelleth no good thing. Your flesh is not going to get any better. You're either going to elevate it, you're either going to magnify it, or you're going to mortify it. One of the two. And this woman, her flesh, presents this problem for her. And our flesh is our greatest problem in our Christian life. Then notice the physicians that failed her. Verse 43 says this, She had spent all her living upon physicians, and neither could be healed of any. Now who are these physicians? They are human solutions to a deeper problem that she has. Now, again, I don't mean this in a derogatory way. I, I, I've got, there was a time we could all afford to go to the doctor. You remember that? Wasn't that good back then when you just call your doctor and go and they'd see you and everything? I, I'm not against, but understand that they could not fix what was broken in her. Hey, there might be a lot of good things that mankind develops, you know, little life hacks and motivational nonsense and all kinds of stuff that may have their place. But can I tell you something? It can't fix what's broken in us. I see here the high cost of looking to man. Imagine all the money she had wasted when she could have just come to Jesus. Let me tell you, there's a high cost to leaning on self instead of looking to the Savior. I'm talking to saved, born-again folks this morning. There's a high cost to you leaning on self instead of looking to the Savior. It could cost you your marriage. It could cost you your kids. It could cost you your testimony. It could cost you your health. And it will never... Hey, listen... The human solutions to the spiritual problems will never remedy the brokenness within us. I see the high cost, but then I see the hopeless consequence and conclusion of looking to man. She could not be healed of any of it. 
the end of the day, they could not fix her. But then what happens? So she recognizes, I have this brokenness about me. My flesh has failed me and it continues to fail me. But here's what she decides to do. She says, if I can just get to Jesus, He can deal with my flesh in a way that I am not equipped to. The Bible says in verse 44, she came behind, touched the border of His garment, and immediately her issue of blood stopped. Now, what's interesting to me, when I think about how she had to get this problem fixed, there were two things that were necessary. Notice, number one, the closeness that was necessary. She couldn't get this problem fixed from afar. She had to get close to Him. You know, part of our problem in our Christian life, we want to keep the Lord at arm's length, but we want to have victory like we walk close with Him every day. You can't have it both ways, friend. If you want victory in your life, if you want your life to count for Christ, I'm not talking about being saved or staying saved or keeping saved. I'm glad the saving is done by Him. Somebody say amen. But I'm talking about having victory in your life. There's going to have to be a closeness to Jesus Christ. I see the closeness. You had to get close to Him if you wanted help. And if you want help, you're going to have to get close to Him. You can't have His healing without having his, uh, his, his presence. You're going to have to get close to Him. Then I see the clinging that was necessary. She reaches out, and it's not enough just to, to have a passing loaf. She grabs hold of the hem of His garment. Now, what would a person think if you were walking down the road and someone reached up and grabbed hold of the hem of your garment? Here's what you would imagine. Two things. One, they are in desperate need of something. And two, they're willing to go wherever I go to get the help I need. She didn't set up camp on the side of the road in a camping chair with a Yeti and wait for him to pass by. Some of y'all don't know what a Yeti is. I'm not talking about a Sasquatch. It doesn't matter. The point is, she didn't just camp on the side of the road. She said, I need help. I'm going to go find him. I'm going to cling to him. Here's what we want to do. We want to say, Lord, I'm broken. I'm going to go to the altar. I'm going to weep. I'm going to pray. I'm going to get up. I'm going to go back to my seat. And I'm going to live like I always did. And we think that's going to give us victory. Can I tell you something? There ain't nothing, there ain't nothing supernatural about this patch of carpet up here. I think it's a fine place to do business with God. I think it mortifies our pride and our flesh when we are willing to go and deal with God in such a definitive manner. I think it's a good thing. I'm for it. I support it. We have an altar call no matter what we're doing. If, if I show up to unlock the doors, me and God's going to have an altar call. I'm for it. But I'm saying there's nothing magical about it. You're going to have to cling to it if you want the help that you need. It's not enough just to come and unburden yourself. You need to. But that in and of itself is not what's going to do it. You're going to have to cling to Him. So when I read this passage, I see in it a picture of salvation. I see a picture of sanctification. But there's one other little picture I see. Let me share it with you. When I see this woman, this is a woman that has a deep need in her life. She comes to Lord Jesus and she reaches out to Him because she needs some kind of help. You know what it makes me think of? Maybe you don't see it, but... I. It makes me think of our prayer life. You know, what this woman does in many ways pictures not only salvation and sanctification, it pictures supplication. It pictures how we interact with the Lord when we have a need in our life and we need His help. Can I say, man, I'm glad when I've got a need, I can reach out and I can find Him. I'm glad He's not far off. I'm glad He's he's not across the ocean. I'm glad He's not up on a mountain. I'm glad He's nigh unto us. We can reach Him through the power of prayer. When I read this, I find it interesting uh, that she reaches out and touches the hem of His garment. You know, elsewhere in the Old Testament, the Bible tells us that 
the color of that garment. Well, we read it in Numbers chapter 15. The color. Why did God say the color was blue? He goes out of his way to say it's it's blue garment. I mean, what you know? What if he's wearing a black black pair of pants? Don't matter. You don't have a blue garment. You have a blue border in the hem of it. Why was that significant? If you study colors in the Old Testament, you know what you'll find? There's significance to each of the colors. For instance, the, the, the color red is obviously significant of, uh, of sacrifice, of, uh, of blood. The, the color white is of purity. The color black of, of corruption. The, the color purple is royalty. And you'll find the color blue all through the Old Testament. That's interesting to me. You know what the color blue is connected with in the Old Testament? It's connected with the priesthood. Whenever they would have cloths that they would lay on the table of showbread to put the bread on, that cloth was to be blue cloth. When they had cloth that the instruments were to lay on, that was blue cloth. When they had cloth they were to lay over top of things to keep them neat and to keep dust away, it was blue cloth. Over and over and over again, the color blue is connected with the priesthood. Now here we're told, she reaches out and touches this blue hem in his garment. What You say, preacher, what does that remind you of? Tell you what it reminds me of. It reminds me of the present current ministry of the Lord Jesus. You know what he's doing today? He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he ever liveth to make intercession for us. He's our great high priest. He's seated there, and when we pray, the Spirit of God takes our prayers, and he rearranges them and cleans them up and fixes all the hymns and the halls and the things we really didn't know how to say. He takes it with groanings and utterings which cannot be discerned, makes them fit because the person on the throne knows the mind of the Spirit and the Spirit knows His mind and they are then delivered to Christ and Christ looks over at the Father and says, Daddy, we've got some prayers for you to hear. And though you or I may never be fit in and of ourselves to be able to offer prayers, the Son always has the ear of the Father. So it reminds me of our prayer life. And when I think about that, I notice three things. One, I notice the driving reason for her prayer. She comes to the Lord because she has a problem. She has a big problem in her life. She has an issue of blood 12 years, which had spent all her living upon physicians. Neither could be healed of any. You know why we come to the Lord? Because we have problems that are bigger than what we can handle. She had done everything that could be done to try to fix this problem. She had paid, she had begged, she had cried. But she now says, I'm going to go to the one who has mastery over the body. Any problem you have, when you take it to the Lord, you're taking it to the best person you possibly can. Think about how backward we are as human beings. Knowing that we have a need, we will go and ask someone else to pray about a need that we are unwilling to pray about ourselves. I say it to my eternal shame, but there's been times I've looked and I've said, hey, pray for this. And the Spirit of God had to smite my spirit and say, won't you pray for it? You ain't praying for it, clown. Why don't you pray for it? We'll ask somebody else to pray for it. We'll ask others to pray for it when we have boldness and access through Him. She has a big problem. It's a problem that is bigger than anything that she can fix. It is a problem deeper than what she can ignore. She can't just pretend this is not a problem. It has consumed her whole life. There's going to be times you're going to pray about things that are easy to forget about. I hope you do. I hope you pray about enough things that you pray about things that would be easy. But there's going to be times you're going to pray about things that consume your whole world. What do we know about this woman? We don't know her name. We don't know her past. We don't know her history. We don't know her family. We don't know her likes, her dislikes, her hobbies. We don't know if she likes sweet tea or unsweet tea. No, we know she likes sweet tea. But we don't. 
cornbread choices. But the point is, you know what we know about her? One thing. She had an issue of love. She had a, she had a disease in her body. And so she comes to the Lord. You know why? Because this is a need that cannot be ignored. Jairus is another man who has a deep abiding need that he's taking to the Lord. And whenever he gets home, they come out and they say, your daughter's dead. Why trouble us thou the master? I, I'll tell you why we trouble the master. Because we need his help. I'll tell you why we trouble him. Because he can raise the dead. I'll tell you why we trouble him. Because he's God. That's why we trouble him. We need Him. That's why we trouble I see her driving reason for her prayer. Then I see the desperate reaching of her prayer. She comes and claws her way through the crowd. We see her determination in her pursuit. She said, I've got to get to Him because He's the only one that can help. You know, part of the reason we struggle in prayer is we don't ever get serious about it. We ignore a problem until it falls to pieces and then sit around rubbing our hands about how awful it all went instead of getting determined about it before it ever gets to that place. She didn't say, well, I hope when I die, somebody prays for my healing at my funeral. By the way, before we snicker too much, that worked for Jairus' daughter. <laughs> she said, I'm not going to wait till then. Jesus is passing through. I'm going to reach out to him right now. I see the determination in her pursuit. Then I see the distinction in her pursuit. Everybody's reaching out and touching him. Why would she get the help? Because she reached out in faith. That's, that's the distinction. We can pray all day long, but if we don't pray in faith, it don't mean anything. Now, faith does not mean demanding that God will answer. But it does mean praying with the absolute confidence that He lacks the ability. And having absolute confidence in the wisdom of His providence and His choices. It's not saying, I'm praying for this and God's going to do it because I've asked for it. It's not what faith is in prayer. Faith in prayer is saying this, I've asked for this, and I know God has the ability. If He wanted to, He could do it right now. I don't know if He will, I don't know if He won't, and I'm willing to accept His will, whatever it is. But when the answer comes, if it's not what I want, I'll not look back at God and shake my fist at Him. I'll not look at Him and say, what a weak God He was. Why couldn't He do this? Why couldn't He do that? Instead, I'll accept it as His will, knowing that He had the power to do whatsoever I've asked him to. I, I see the, the distinction. She had faith, and the faith made the difference. And then I see the divine response to her prayer. I, two things happened. Verse 44, immediately her issue of blood stopped. I see that God granted her request. Now, I'm not going to tell you God's going to grant every prayer that you pray. I wish I could. You'd like me about, a lot better if I said that. And that's why some pe preachers on TV do say that. Amen. Uh, but I can't tell you God's going to grant every request. He'll answer every prayer. But I can't promise you that He'll grant every request. But I can promise you this. If it's in His will, He has the ability to answer. Uh, the Bible says immediately. It doesn't say, and we know, we understand Jesus healed this woman. But it doesn't even directly invoke His agency in. I mean, it, it's spoken of almost like He's walking along and before He even knows what's happened, He's healed this woman. And we understand him being God. He knew everything that was transpiring. But isn't it interesting the way the Bible frames that? Does it not suggest to us this, that for him to answer our greatest needs in life, it is so easy and so inconsequential in the effort it takes as to not even be noticed. Let me say it this way. Your biggest problem God could fix without breaking a sweat. He has the ability to. He's God. What could we ask him that would be beyond him? I see that God granted her request, but then I see something better happen. Verse 48 says this. He said unto her daughter, 
That's interesting. Daughter, you have a relationship now. You have a relationship with God. You are a daughter of God. Be of good comfort. Not be of good health. Not go and be well. Be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. What does whole mean? Whole means more than just your problem is fixed. Whole means to be complete. And he says, go in peace. Well, I bet she's glad that she went out and reached out to Jesus that day. Because you know what she got? She got more than just a clean bill of health. I see that not only did God grant her request, but God grew her relationship with him. She, she was more of a believer at the tail end of this passage than she was at the beginning. She had faith at the beginning, but at the end she has a deepened relationship with God. You know the great thing about prayer is it ain't really about getting what we want. One of my favorite books when I was a young preacher was Prayer Asking and Receiving. John R. Rock, you ever read it or heard of it? Surely you've heard of it. Uh, and, and, and I used to love that book. And he would say this. He'd say, prayer is simply asking and receiving. That's all it is. Uh, the, the the dusty theological definition of prayer included all these different facets and all these different things. And Dr. Ross would say, no, prayer is just asking and receiving. I get what he was trying to say. He was trying to simplify the matter of prayer. Can I tell you this? Prayer is not only more than asking and receiving. The asking and the receiving, or what is received, is not even the primary focus of prayer itself. What God's doing in your life is more than just answering prayers. He's deepening your faith. God does more when He answers a prayer than just pay a bill. God does more when He answers a prayer than just heal a disease. God does more than just answer a prayer when He bonds back together and repairs a marriage or, or a home. God's doing a lot more than that. God is growing us through that process, deepening our relationship with Him. And the way that this woman walked away, having a deeper relationship with God, that's why we pray. God could, hey, He already knows what we have need of before He even asks. He could just give us everything. He could, he could, he could parent us like some people parent. Just give him everything, right? That's not what he does. He makes us ask. You know why? Because there's growth in the asking. There's faith in the answering. God's growing and developing us. And this is a reminder, this passage is, of what Christ can do for us in this day. If you're a lost sinner, you know what he can do? He can save you. That brokenness that nothing else can fix, that, that emptiness that nothing else can fill, Jesus can make your life whole. Reminds me of sanctification, that process of growing closer to the Lord, uh, of growing more consecrated in the way that we live. It ain't our flesh that's going to help us. Our flesh will always fail us. The physicians will fail us. The human solution will fail us. But I'm glad that the Lord never fails us. And it reminds us of His present ministry of intercession. Man, I'm glad we can go and pray. Preacher, my heart's heavy, then pray. Preacher, my heart's broken, then pray. Preacher, i got a problem bigger than you could ever imagine. It's not bigger than God. Pray. Pray. And watch God work in your life. Let's bow together this morning. The musician comes. The altar is open. And I think it'd be good if there's folks whose hearts are burdened with a need. If they found a place down here and prayed and sought the Lord's help. I think that'd be a great way to start off this altar call. you got a burden in your life. you got a need in your life. you got something in your life bigger than you can fix. Deeper than you can can change broader than you can handle, why don't you come and just declare that thing in the heart and ears of God and pray and ask God's help. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.